0: Riverside Chats is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep this podcast going strong, bringing you the unique perspectives, personalities, and topics you love. Click the listener support link in the podcast notes for this episode to learn more. What started as Benson First Friday is now officially known as BFF. Same great people, same great organization, new name. This change will help BFF reach new communities as they continue to grow. BFF is dedicated to supporting the region's emerging and established artists by creating opportunity, exposure, and experiences that help them move forward while enriching the cultural competency of the greater Omaha area. BFF to the arts, BFF to the community, BFF. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I am Tom Noblock. If you are listening really closely or you have this turned up really loud, you might be able to hear there is a uh, band playing uh, in the building. It's at the opposite end of the building, which is nice. It's it's the best case scenario of being <laughs> recording a podcast uh, in a building where a band is playing because you, you can't quite make out exactly what's happening. It's not overpowering the conversation. But, uh, you know, you can hear it. So, sorry about that. Uh, We'll try try to get that figured out for next time. Um, But today on the show, I've got Diana Martinez, who I just spoke to for a little over an hour. Um, She is the education director at Film Streams, and she's the host of the podcast Hollywood in Color. Diana is an incredibly interesting person. She's basically one of those people who it's like, you know ever since i was a kid i was always interested in film i thought about going down some of the same paths that she has gone down uh and there's a lot of similarities actually as somebody who uh you know teaches in one way or another as well she went on to get a phd in film she taught film for a while now she's at film streams and she's got the job the real like okay teaching film uh in a college level would be exciting to me sure but the real thing that really is something I, oh, man, I'm so jealous that she gets to do. And I didn't even mention it to her. It didn't come up in the conversation. But uh, whenever they have guests, when they have filmmakers come down to film streams, you know, when they do a, some sort of filmmaker screening of whatever uh, happened, she's the person who gets to interview them after it and talk and kind of do the, the fun q and I don't know why I'm obsessed with Q&As. I've always been obsessed with Q&As. Obviously, the fact that I do this show is an outgrowth of that obsession but she's the one who gets to do that. And she does a great job with it, but it's like, Oh man, I wish somehow I had gone through, I had made different choices in my life to end up as the person who for a half hour after a screening gets to talk to the filmmaker or, uh, You know, when when they host those panels, I love hosting panels. That's so fun to me. And about film, she basically she's got one of the coolest jobs as far as I'm concerned. Uh, It's it's kind of like talking to her and then talking to Rachel Jacobson were two really exciting uh, conversations that I was able to have. Clearly film streams is just, uh, it's a lot of dreams of mine. I talked about in the episode with Rachel Jacobson where uh, there was a point when the Dundee theater had been under renovation for several years and it looked like it probably wasn't going to do anything like nothing really is going to happen there and me as somebody who doesn't really have money uh, doesn't really have any business experience you know like I've I've worked various jobs where there's some degree of experience I suppose but not uh not anything that would impress an investor or something like that but I you know I, I saw that Oh, the Dundee still is not uh, being renovated. What What if I just buy it? You know, what What if I just uh, pretend like I have money, get some absurd loan and uh, buy it? Like, it can't be that expensive, right? It's a, it's a, a run down theater. It's a cultural thing more than anything else. I'll, you know, like, I'll just figure it out. And uh, I've, I've kind of had this approach to a lot of things. The whole just like, I have no means to figure out how to do this. I don't really have the skills to figure out how to do this. But I'm, I'm just going to, you know, commit to it anyway. And sometimes that's worked out, you know, like, you know, we've moved, made movies, we've done this show. Somehow we've established a podcast studio uh, at a nonprofit for the arts in Omaha from just, you know, buying a mic and kind of figuring it out. And so it's like there's been various times where that's worked. Uh, I'm not sure that buying a movie theater would have been one of them. And thank God Rachel Jacobson ended up getting it from uh, Susie Buffett. And, you know, Rachel was definitely the right person to take control of that. But it's like. Yeah, that that was a a fantasy of mine another fantasy of mine is just to do Q&A's with people and so it's like God Diana's got this great job and then on top of that not only does she just have a cool job and have a lot of similar interest to what I do in terms of just being obsessed with film but she's trying to do a lot with it which something that's come up a fair amount I think in this show specifically is this idea that just art for art's sake or just entertainment for entertainment's sake isn't I don't know. It, there's value in it, but sometimes it's not on its own wholly satisfying. And I think the reason why is because you want to be a person who's making a positive change in the world. And sometimes it's not clear that that's happening if you're just goofing around. So Diana is somebody who has always sort of seemed to have had these interests in changing things for the better, oftentimes through education and through just exposure. And she's figuring out ways to do that that are extremely cool. So, I mean, if you are interested in seeing some of those, definitely check out her podcast, Hollywood in Color. It's a fantastic podcast. It's got history. It's got film details that you may not have come across. It's a satisfying listen. It's an angering listen. And I talked to her a little bit about that and the emotional reaction that people get to it. But I guess the the one thing that I would make sure that you're aware of is... It's a history podcast, but it's uh, it's an emotionally engaging and sometimes enraging uh, history podcast. It's not a dry history podcast. She knows what she's doing. She's really good at it. And uh, I wish that she would move into documentary films or something like that because I think she'd be amazing at it. She seems pretty hesitant. I tried, I tried to talk her into making documentaries. I tried to talk her into uh, writing books. and. Uh, <laughs> She's pretty clear on what she wants to do. It's working out for her, so I'll I'll, I'll cut her some slack on that one and uh, not bother her about it. But, you know, she is great at finding ways to take information and find both an entertaining, informative, uh, and just a good flow of information to to get across what she wants to get across, which ultimately is a bigger point. And so I talked to her about all of that, sort of how she got to the place where she is now and then what's going on. So check out Hollywood in color, check out the film streams, education courses. They've got ones for, they do some through schools, but also there's adult education where they do several weeks of watching various movies and talking about them or then deep dives where they watch a bunch of movies at once. So all kinds of great information. So it's sort of like the next extension from having an art house cinema is Knowing how to effectively educate people on why these movies matter. What is the context of these movies? How to contextualize movies is always sort of changing. And Diane is one of the people who is doing her best to influence the way it's changing in a way that's helpful for everybody. And talking about that with her, talking about even like Woody Allen movies uh, is something that was a delight for me. That was one of my favorite things uh, just to talk about. What do we do with that To also just acknowledge we like those movies, then to acknowledge I kind of feel bad that I like those movies. Should I feel bad? All of those questions are things that I think a lot of people feel like, but there's not a whole lot of that specific dialogue happening, and to talk to someone like her about it was sort of uh, incredibly exciting for me, and so I'm excited to share that. Before we get to the conversation, though, let me just remind you, if you appreciate this show and what we do here, uh, our mission basically is to take this notion where people in omaha think all the interesting people who come from omaha leave and go somewhere else to do the fascinating uh, you know whatever activity their life is leading them toward here are riverside chats we are out to prove that notion is incorrect uh and by doing that we talk to a lot of interesting people we try to get the word out of people so if you think that that's a worthwhile mission that's maybe worth a little bit of your money hopefully it's worth your time at the very least but if, if you think you know worth a dollar a month or something like that please head on over to patreon.com slash creative there are different tiers of uh, giving that would get you different rewards and also there is some exclusive patreon content on there so feel free to look up that if you are interested in it otherwise i will just get right into the episode here so this is my conversation with dr diana martinez of film streams and the host of hollywood in color please enjoy Yeah, I mean, I've always been just like a film nerd, Mm -hmm. and so to see everything Rachel's done was amazing to me, and just to talk to her. I was, that's like, I've done a lot of interviews, but I was probably more starstruck talking to Rachel (laughs) than anybody else. (laughs) Uh, She has
1: that effect on people.
0: (laughs) Well, she's really impressive, and uh, obviously you've got a connection with her too, but I'd like to start talking with you more about, uh, like, when did you first get into film in general?
1: Oh, man. Um, I was very young when I got into film, so my parents let me watch things that were very inappropriate for my age Yeah, just like whatever they were watching yeah yeah and so they um immigrated from el salvador so they used film to basically learn how to speak english oh okay and so that was everything from like you know arnold movies to random art house films (laughs) that was just like on hbo because they used to be on hbo every now and then um so yeah i realized much later on that I was watching things that I probably shouldn't have seen.
0: Well, do you, do you think that actually makes a difference? Like what? I mean, uh, censoring what kids see.
1: I think so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I Yeah, I really do. I mean, I come across it because like I'm the education director. Mm-hmm. So I have to think of like what's appropriate for a child to see. Um, But especially like in Latino communities, like there's much less restriction on what is okay for kids to see um it's really hard to find like a child appropriate in terms of like American terms um like Spanish language film Mm -hmm. or like a French film (laughs) and so like for me I was really lucky that I was able to see a lot of different kinds of things and I really wasn't watching a lot of like media for kids
0: right well it seems like there's just not a whole lot of effort that goes into media for kids in terms of making it interesting on a thematic level or yeah. having depth and maybe i'm just biased but i, I came from parents who also just kind of let me watch whatever they watched mm-hmm. and i'm really grateful for that i feel like i don't know if i would have actually gotten into film in the way i did if i was watching kids movies mm-hmm. and i like I've, I've sort of developed into a snobby person i feel like because of that because <laughs> it's like uh, yeah i don't know if i want to watch that you know that's, that's yeah. below me i guess it was like they People say it's like uh, when I was a kid, I just became an adult way too early where it's like, you know, Mm -hmm. judging this stuff. But like, I mean, don't you think that sort of just watching things that are beyond your comprehension level to a certain point teaches you to think about it and to want to problem solve? Like what's going on here? And then just sort of appreciate the layers because you know that there's stuff that's going on that you don't understand, but you want to figure it out. I feel like that's a great skill set that you kind of get from that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I like I love like romantic comedies when I was young and I remember being able to predict what was going to happen, like learning those tropes, like learning the predictability of a movie and judging it in that sense. Mm -hmm. Um, Really young when I was like 12 or 13, like I, you know, knew what was going to happen in every romantic comedy and I still loved them. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like that kind of like knowledge, like intimate knowledge of a genre, like people don't really develop until they're much older until they've seen a much broader range of things. And I was really lucky that I was exposed to so many different types of films. Um, cause it also really helped me find things that I loved. Like I wasn't just confined to watching, you know, whatever was on Nickelodeon, although I did watch that <laughs> stuff too.
0: So you didn't get that snobby element with it. you just kind of were like, no, no,
1: I feel like I'm, I try really hard to be the opposite of a snob.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like the, the default... As you're somebody with a PhD in film. Yeah. So, like, the assumption is you must be a snob because you have a PhD in film, yes, right?
1: Yes, That is the assumption. And, like... Oh, boy, is that... And, I yeah, the question, like, what's your favorite movie? I feel like whenever people ask that, they want to hear some, like, weird, obscure <laughs> Asian film that they've never heard of and you can't find in the States. Um, I don't have an answer for that. But I also... I think because I grew up with so many different types of films um and appreciating them all for what they do like it was hard for me to say that one was actually better than the other I think each genre different film types are good at what they do Mm -hmm. like Marvel movies are great at what they do do you you like Marvel movies um they're hit or miss for me but like I don't um you know, hate anyone for liking them. Like, oh, I, sure, I, yeah. I understand why you would. Right. Um, you know, they're messed up in the way that, like, the military is involved in, like, funding them and stuff. So that's weird. Is that true? The military. Yeah. What's
0: that, what, how does that work?
1: Yeah. So, um, uh, so you know, for a lot of these films, they need to use like equipment or something like that in order to, like, Captain Marvel, for instance. Um, they use a lot of like military airplanes and uniforms and stuff and so they usually have like military consultants for that kind of thing Um, but more and more the military has actually gotten involved in um, for example lending them certain like bases that they can use Um, and because of that they can use like military people as extras so then the production studio doesn't need to pay SAG fees hmm. to the extras because they're actually military people and because of that they're actually kind of like our taxes are kind of paying for those people to be in these movies Captain Marvel was used as a kind of like an Air Force recruitment tool like at its premiere it's it's just so super interesting <laughs>
0: that makes it almost propagandic there's in some whole, ways th- though, yeah there's right. a whole book on it what's the Um, book I'm
1: forgetting what it's called but it's like called like propaganda and and blockbuster films or the military and blockbuster films or something like that it's super interesting
0: I mean I guess it's not I mean we'd like to think that it's sort of like a level playing field where it's mainly just art and what happens in the system market but I guess it's never been that way in film really no and
1: yeah that's particularly what I'm interested in like I love all those like market dynamics that go into making a film um because I really like, I think focusing on content, like so much of content is shaped by like the what the studio heads' notes are on a certain film, you know, or like the budget that they're um, really closely tied to. Or like in the case of like, you know, um, Miramax films, like Harvey Weinstein had such a hand in shaping the narratives of the films that he was um, funding. And that really like tells us a lot about you know, not necessarily the attitudes on women of the directors, but the attitudes on women of, you know, this man who we now know was like a terrible person who think, we've known for a long time as a terrible person. Right. And all of those things influence content so much more than we give them credit for. Right.
0: I thought that was one of the things when I talked to Rachel, actually, I, it took me uh, a lot of self-control to not just go on a complete uh, tangent talking about her experience with Weinstein or talking oh, to Scott yeah. Rudin or just kind of being the periphery of any of that. Yeah. Um, but it's like, I asked her about it too. And it's kind of interesting to think how so many of the movies that everyone loves that sort of turn people into movie nerds, whether that's, you know, Miramax movies or whatever mm-hmm. it might be. It's hard to wrap your mind around the fact that a lot of people making those movies or in control in those movies were not good people. Yeah. And I don't know what you do with that or mm-hmm. if that should change your view of those movies or if the culture of film in general, I don't know what you to make of any of that.
1: That is a question I deal with every day. Well, I mean, just personally, so, like, for me, like, Woody Allen films were super foundational. I was a huge Woody Allen film. For, like, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm also dealing with the Woody Allen films. Like, I, you know, <laughs> and
1: I knew this going into my Woody Allen, like, my love of Woody Allen films. Um, it wasn't new news by the time I got to them. Um, I actually just wrapped up a, a course that I taught at Film Streams. It was on animation, and the last week was on Saturday and Uh, we taught, uh, uh, and I taught uh, like racist and banned cartoons from Warner Brothers and Disney. And so the question that I am still grappling with is, you know, how do you teach these things responsibly, right? Do I teach them at all? Like, is it beneficial to put people in front of movies with this racist or sexist imagery? Like, should I be having students watch Birth of a Nation? Or do they just, like, read about it and through descriptions, you know, know about it in that way? Like, seeing those images is incredibly powerful, but I also... So, like, as an educator, I see the value in that, but as a person of color, like, I can't also say that I would want to subject, like, students to have to watch that, um, you know, to... Not just like to trigger anyone, but just like to have to deal with that anymore. And I feel like, you know, Woody Allen is the same thing. Like, how do I teach a class on, you know, the imagination of New York and film without teaching a Woody Allen film? Like, he was so foundational to how so many directors envision the city. Um, how do you tell that history by excluding it? How do I tell the history of, you know, black families on television without teaching The Cosby Show? Um, so as an educator, I understand their value, but I have a really hard time forcing other people to watch things they don't want to watch. I personally have stood by the, you know, they're they're part of what I saw, and they're part of me somehow. So I can't really I can't cancel that. Right. Now you know. Well,
0: yeah, I mean, I think about that in terms of like I probably Woody Allen steered me toward a lot of interests that I mm-hmm. had that sort of helped develop, and so it's like. I certainly do find it hard to go back and watch something like Manhattan is a movie yeah. that I have a lot of trouble trying to watch at all, even though there's a ton of beautiful imagery. There's all yeah. tons of great th- filmmaking in that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's like you have to sort of accept it. But there's also people who sort of have the, uh, the opinion that it's like we should just get rid of that stuff. So, I mean, like I understand you don't want to force people to it uh, mm-hmm. to watch mm-hmm. it. But also, I mean, would, do, what do you think of that push where it's like that stuff shouldn't even be available uh, if it's made by somebody who has done something bad or, you know, it's yeah. canceled in whatever way.
1: I, that's impossible. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: I, I feel like that's impossible just because their their influence lives in other people's work. Like, I really love, like, Greta Gerwig um, had a really not good response to the Woody Allen thing, like, right after, um, you know, the the Time's Up movement kind of started. And then she went back and said, like, you know what, like Woody Allen's films are a part of me as a person, as a filmmaker, um, and I have to grapple with that somehow, and so you know there's a whole slew of filmmakers that, without going back to other directors, other problematic people as a reference, like we just won't understand. Um, I don't think you can get rid of these films just i I just yeah. like they you just can't and i I really do feel that. Um, You know, in a decade or so, we'll be back to being able to recontextualize these films and talk about them in interesting ways besides just put it out of my sight because that doesn't that doesn't make anything better. Like you can't forget racism and sexism just because you don't watch racist and sexist things. Right. Right. It's institutional. It's not individual
0: well and i assume part of your i mean the reason why you have your podcast is to try to recontextualize a lot of hollywood history in general Mm -hmm. i mean but like so when you were a kid and you're starting to fall in love with movies are you aware of a lot of these problems or where does that start to develop for you
1: no i was not aware of any of these things (laughs) (laughs) i mean or i don't know i like i was also like i really loved celebrity gossip growing up um i read tabloids and then like i knew all these celebrities were dating and what they were doing behind the scenes so like there was that part of me that was always interested in celebrity and the kind of mechanisms of publicity um and more and more as i started reading i was like oh like you know back in the tabloid days you drop huge news on a friday because everyone forgets about it on the weekends like it's a whole like it's a whole cycle it's a whole industry and market for like how you run a gossip magazine. Um, but really, it wasn't until grad school when I was working on my dissertation. It was started out being about women filmmakers just in terms of the content. Um, but then I realized, then it took a turn to just be more about women comedians as filmmakers. Um, and then I started really getting into like asking this question, like why have women comedians uh out of all the kind of women working in Hollywood, since we know Hollywood is so difficult for women to navigate, women comedians have been actors, directors, producers, writers, usually simultaneously on their own products. And that's not something that happens for Meryl Streep. Like that's not something that happens for Nicole Kidman and these like women that we value so highly as artists. It happens for people like Mindy Kaling and Tina Fey and Lucille Ball. and so that's kind of when I became interested in, you know, thinking more deeply about like all of these other, all of the systems and institutions around filmmaking that allow someone to become successful.
0: Well, so did you get an undergrad in film as well?
1: Um, it was technically in English. English? Okay. Yeah.
0: I feel like that makes sense because it's, it's easier to get an English degree. Uh, it's, they're just more accessible. Yeah. So yeah. Where, where did you go for undergrad?
1: Um, Cal State San Bernardino. So it was just a state school in California where I grew up. Um, but one of my professors in the English department, he was a medievalist, but also taught film classes.
0: Oh, wow. OK. Yeah. And the
1: first <laughs> class we took, uh, I took was an adaptation class. And we um, read Beowulf and talked about it as an adaptation of a- or alien as an adaptation of Beowulf.
0: Interesting. Okay.
1: It maps. It it tracks. Okay, I believe you. Yeah, I won't it's, have to go through it all. It's in my really <laughs> interesting, actually. And then I was like, oh, I didn't know you could do this. I didn't know people did this.
0: Like to take something that old and then completely reimagine it. I or? mean, I didn't
1: know that film analysis in that oh. way was a thing, like in a like in a scholarly way.
0: So, I mean, when, when you were reading about film, though, I'm sure mm-hmm. you were. Were you like an obsessive IMDb person, like? Click on everything, find all the connections to everything. Okay, Mm -hmm. I was like that too. Mm -hmm. But so you must have been exposed in some way to conversations on film, just not in an Mm -hmm. academic sense then? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Oh,
1: yeah. Like I was, like I knew people were movie critics, but Mm -hmm. I didn't know you could be a professor in a university and teach about films.
0: Okay. Were you, I mean, were you one of those people who reviewed movies a lot, like when you were younger? Did you engage in any of that?
1: I did not. Okay. I no I did not
0: (laughs) (laughs) I feel like it's common among film buffs to have their own, whether it's a blog or whatever it's going to be it is
1: yeah no I was I was super slow like I remember with tv I was a little bit more active I was like reading recaps Mm -hmm. and like on discussion boards and stuff like I remember Dawson's Creek was a huge show for me (laughs) and they had this whole online thing Like in the summer, where they had like some characters journal. And for me, it like blew my mind. It was like the first time that I remember like you know an ongoing series or something for a show on the internet right like whoa this is crazy well
0: even imdb had those message boards Mm -hmm. and i remember i would go look at those all the time yeah it's probably a huge waste of time but it's just like you feel like you're talking to all these people who maybe are watching things that no one around you actually is yeah
1: i would read what television without pity is that what it was called i think so yeah yeah Yeah, Yeah. so like i remember a whole (laughs) bunch of those people like from back then who were like writing in new york now but
0: well, I mean, were you somebody who then, like, did you think about going into filmmaking as opposed to studying film?
1: I did. I mean, I thought about it for a little bit. I was like, oh, I'll be a director because that was the only job I could think of that had a concrete, I had a concrete idea of what that might be. Mm-hmm. Um, to be perfectly honest, I never really wanted to make films. It was, it's a lot of work. It's, it's so much work. It's very difficult. Yeah. I'm <laughs> like, this is not for me. Um, I was a really good writer and I like to read a lot and I was good at research and I knew I wanted to be a professor at some point.
0: Were you thinking literature professor at first? Then I was yeah
1: yeah and then you know that professor blew my mind with his Beowulf (laughs) trickery Um, and I was like okay I didn't and then I you know researched graduate schools and all of that stuff and I decided that that's what I was going to pursue. And so basically the last two years of undergrad, I was taking um, pretty much just like film classes, like film criticism classes. Um, and so I was able to write a lot of papers that I then used for my application into grad school.
0: Well, so, okay, when, when you were at this point, so you thought about being a filmmaker, who mm-hmm. were the sort of filmmakers that you thought you might emulate? That's a
1: good question. We're gonna have to go
0: at Woody, Woody. Allen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I relate to that too. Uh, yeah. Was I mean, were any of the problematic elements of him becoming apparent to you? Because I know when I was at high school watching Woody Allen movies, it was harder for me to see some of that. I think mm-hmm. just because like when I'm young, it doesn't seem as creepy to me some of the things that are happening. But then as soon as mm-hmm. you become an adult and you start to see age a little bit differently, yeah. Then I would go back and think like, Okay, that is actually creepy. I see what the uproar was.
1: Yeah, so so I actually took a class on Woody Allen in oh, really? undergrad and we watched Crimes and Misdemeanors.
0: I love Crimes and Misdemeanors. Um,
1: yeah I love that movie too but I think that was the movie that I was like this is maybe misogynist. Yeah <laughs> like, well it's, just, it's I mean, almost all his movies yeah. have some element to that too. Yeah yeah and I mean I was I was super struck by you know any kind of realist director like I didn't want to have be like an action director or something. Right. I love like Nora Ephron films. Um I thought it was so super cool that she was like creating this little world that doesn't, to me, doesn't exist, <laughs> you know, of just like love and these beautiful places and Nancy Meyers movies with her kitchens and sure. everyone's in these cardigans. <laughs> like I really liked, um, I don't know, the, this idea of accessing this like East Coast elitism through film.
0: Right. Well, I mean, even something like When Harry Met Sally is kind of like a gentler Woody Allen sort yeah. of approach. Yeah. I mean, so, okay, so you, you were thinking about that kind of storytelling. Mm-hmm. Was that, as you were thinking about being a literature professor, mm-hmm. what were your literary interests then?
1: Oh, my God. Um, yeah, so it was very similar. Like a lot of like priv- sad, privileged people, so like Madame Bovary, The Picture Jane of Dorian Austen. Gray, lots of Jane Austen, Sylvia Plath. Nice, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it I think what I really enjoyed about, like, that genre of film and also of books is that it it did seem at some point to give, like, primacy to women's voices. Like, that women, there is this idea that women are dissatisfied with their seemingly perfect lives that really resonated with me Um, that I think are still types of films that resonate with me, just things that are just deeply melancholy Mm -hmm. inside um well
0: and that kind of thing seems like it's always been appreciated a lot more in literature than Mm -hmm. I don't even know if it is really appreciated right now in film yeah uh, on like a wide scale right I mean it's like the genre sort of element in film always seems like it's overridden a lot of the uh you know personal explorations in film Mm -hmm. so I mean I feel like I I mean I get that too where it's like literature is an easier way to explore some of those, uh, things that you appreciate in those sorts of movies because mm-hmm. it's, it is mainstream literature, especially in the classics. I feel like. Yeah. Well, so, okay. So those kind of books, did you think about writing books then too?
1: I did. Okay. Were, I de- yeah.
0: Were you going to write like your own Jane Austen sorts of books or what yeah, were those look like? yeah,
1: that's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God no one let me do that.
0: <laughs> well, th- I mean, did you, did you try to get anything published or was it just sort of like, I'm going to try to write something and see if anything happens from it?
1: I wrote some poetry, and I think it was published at some point. I don't remember. That's where. cool, though. Yeah, like online and like different. Like I won some awards or whatever. Nice. Um, and yeah, so I I I fancied myself a poet, um, but I really didn't start writing again until the tail end of grad school. Um, I wrote a piece for Slate and a couple pieces for The Atlantic. Um, when I was trying to think of how do I find my way out of this academic career that I put myself in that I no longer want to do? And that's when I was like, I think, I think I'll give writing a chance, like film criticism. I'm going to try to do that.
0: And I mean that, I feel like a lot of it is really adjacent though, because Mm -hmm. a lot of it's got to just be basically cultural studies, essentially just different mediums. So when you switched over to film, you were in California already. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you Mm -hmm. had California options, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. tons of, prestigious film schools there yes how did you figure out where you wanted to go to study film
1: well I mean part of part of it was financial honestly like I couldn't afford to go to USC for sure my parents told me like we're not paying for your college so figure it out and I was like "Mm, 20 grand at the time I was like that seems like a lot of money I don't have that Um, but when I was researching PhD programs I actually um, ended up going to the University of Oregon to work with a professor named Kathleen Carlin who is um, kind of one of the preeminent feminist media studies scholars Um, and I really liked her work and I kind of went there to work with her Uh, so I applied and I it was the first application I sent in and I got an acceptance it was like okay we're doing it and I got you know full funding to do that and so I moved to Oregon all (laughs) by myself
0: (laughs) was your family supportive of getting a PhD in film
1: oh uh Yes. I mean, so they they definitely wanted me to have a Ph.D.
0: Well, that's cool. Just in general, <laughs> no matter what you get it in.
1: Yeah. But like as like immigrant parents, both of my older sisters have master's degrees. I was like, I need to. <laughs> how do I be better? Yeah. You had to one get up a then. PhD.
0: And you did. Yeah. And yeah. I
1: did. So they were super excited about it. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't think they had any issues with it because they figured that the end game is teaching. Right. Like teaching in a university, both of my sisters were teaching and one was teaching in high school and one was teaching in middle school at the time. So like teaching was the route. So I don't think they cared where as long as it was going to happen. Um, if I had wanted to be a filmmaker, they probably would have had more issues with that. Right. Yeah.
0: Well, it's, it's hard to see where the money comes from. In mm-hmm.
1: that one. Yeah. But it was definitely like the academic bent that they were like, yes, it's go a to school forever. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> do your siblings teach uh, English, or what do they teach?
1: Um, so one one sister teaches biology, um, and the other one, she, well, she teaches elementary now, so she teaches all the subjects. But she's also the drama teacher.
0: Okay, why mm-hmm. do you think you guys all gravitated toward teaching?
1: Because our parents made us. <laughs> <laughs> what does I that know. mean? How that happened? They really like respected teaching and teachers. Um, I think we're all pretty good public speakers in some sense or another. Um, We're all kind of brainy.
0: Um, So, yeah, I mean, those are two. It's like you you like to talk about what you know and show off a little bit, but then also you can help people come to your level. Yeah,
1: we were readers, writers, but I think we all also share that same thing where we're not, we like creative projects, but don't necessarily have the tenacity to make a creative pursuit our full-time job right yeah and yeah and it's taking, probably smart honestly <laughs> maybe it's, it's hard to go it try to do that hard. stuff and yeah. I mean
0: most people don't understand that until they try it though mm-hmm. I mean it's it takes maybe it's just because you're reading so much about it but how did you even know how hard it was going to be to try to be like a filmmaker or a novelist to even know maybe I don't want to put that burden on myself to figure out how to do it
1: well, like watching a lot of these like behind the scenes documentaries type things. And I'm like, I don't want to be in charge of all these. people. like, I have to know about a budget. Like, I don't want to learn about math or finances. Like, I don't I don't want to do that. Sounds terrible. Sure. Like, I very quickly saw that at a certain scale, it becomes much more bureaucratic than creative. Now it's like, well, in that case, I'm just not going to do it.
0: Well, I mean... Teaching and directing feel like there's there's some overlap there. There There's a little bit because you're still just trying to get a bunch of people on the same page (laughs) and wrangling them however you need to to do that. Yeah. Where did you get the public speaking skills?
1: I don't know. I hated public speaking when I was a child. I when we used to have like school performances, of which I had no solo and was in the background. I would like make myself sick because I had such terrible stage fright. So I I don't know. Um, At some point. I got a lot more comfortable with it. And then when I was like in high school, I realized that that was kind of a strength that I had. Like I was good at all of the like presentations that we had to do. I liked it. I liked talking to other people. I feel like I'm a better maybe verbal communicator than I am a writer. Do
0: you think, I mean, but there wasn't like a moment where you learned something about it. It just sort of like it developed over time or you just lost that fright. Yeah. I feel like for me, a big moment there was at some point you realize most people aren't really listening to what you're saying. (laughs) That's true. Like there's like, you know, a third of the group maybe is listening really intently and the rest it's kind of in and out or maybe not at all. Yeah. So it's like, okay, well, that's fine then. I'm only talking to these people really.
1: Yeah. No, that's really the case. I mean, I think part of it was like, it took me a really long, I feel like in high school I felt really accepted by my friends and I didn't really care what they thought. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a huge moment when you get to that. and
1: it's very freeing. Right. Because you can play with things and ideas and saying things in certain ways and either it goes well or it doesn't. But, like, high school was definitely, like, I had really close friends um, who were all really brilliant and smart, and I think I just came into my own. And ever since then I've, you know, care less and less about what people think of me, but I think that makes me, in terms of, like, a public speaker – um, you know, not nervous or anxious or sure. Well, even of that stuff,
0: even the trajectory toward PhD in film, I feel like is to some extent you're like, yeah, I'm not going to do maybe like what is going to be the most money making or what everybody expects <laughs> everybody sure. to do. Right. It's like, I'm just going to do this cause I believe in it and I want to do it. Yeah. And you figured it out.
1: Yes. My salary was definitely not on the <laughs> forefront of my mind.
0: Yeah. Cause you're like, I don't care what you guys think.
1: <laughs> no uh, millions of dollars yeah. for me. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> Um, Well, so so then when you go to do your PhD, was Mm -hmm. there a clear idea what you wanted to research? I mean, you mentioned what your dissertation was about. Mm -hmm. Was that something you'd always or you were developing that sort of fascination with those topics?
1: Yes. Yeah. So. I was in grad school beginning in 2010, so I think it was maybe a year after I was in grad school when Lena Dunham's Girls comes out. Um, and there's this huge kerfuffle over it, and I was fascinated with like, the strong reactions, both like in terms of people loving the show and in terms of hating the show, hating everything it stands for, is hating Lena Dunham. Um, and so I started writing about Lena Dunham in this trajectory of women filmmakers and the, these kind of demands that are always put on women filmmakers to be representative of all of womankind. Mm. Um,
0: when season one, primarily what I remember, people were mad basically that it was all a bunch of privileged white women, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah.
1: Which, you know, is where I jive. (laughs) (laughs) And so, yeah. So I, you know, was so fascinated with this conversation and, um, but it really made me start thinking kind of objectively about the way that we talk about work by women, right? The things that were being said about Lena Dunham were similar things that were being said about Sofia Coppola, um, that are, you know, very different than what's being said by like Catherine Bigelow, who makes like you know masculine films or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so I was just really interested in the rhetoric, like the words that people were using to describe her work. And so that's kind of when I started thinking that the dissertation was going to be a women filmmakers. So I was basically writing about women filmmakers for about four years before heading into the dissertation, where it kind of changed and switched tracks, but.
0: And so what, what was the ultimate focus of the dissertation?
1: Women comedians.
0: And it, So you're saying that women comedians have different sort of latitude with what they mm-hmm. choose to do? What did yeah. you determine there? What did, what did you come up with? Yeah,
1: they have so much more latitude than any other type of creative, um, which is really interesting given how few women are in the industry at any given time. Women comedians have occupied so many different spaces. And my hypothesis about this was that um, the way that comedians can kind of collapse their personas, right? Mindy is Mindy on screen and she's Mindy off screen. Um, Lucille Ball is Lucy on screen and she's Lucy off screen, right? Um, Wanda Sykes is Wanda in her sitcom. She's Wanda off. Like, and so this ability to kind of be permeable between like fiction and reality um what it's really doing is it's creating such a powerful brand for them, Mm -hmm. right? Because you don't have to associate them with different characters that they play because supposedly they're playing different versions of themselves and like this ability to move between all these different spaces with their same name, um, with their same attributes makes them the kind of perfect like branding mechanism.
0: Well, that I mean, that's something that maybe Woody Allen was doing something like that too. Yeah. And why why do you think that's such an effective, uh, like why does that work so well?
1: yeah. I mean I think it works really well because with comedy you have to feel like you you feel like you know the person right like they're usually not within these you know crazy dramatic spaces where they're unattainable or unrelatable comedy is your everyman Mm -hmm. and Woody Allen was really good at that. Um, But what makes, you know, someone like him different from women comedians is that they do like they do play characters on screen. Right. Except for Jerry Seinfeld. Um, Most, you know, male comedians when they're on screen don't play themselves or at least they have the agency to not play themselves as they don't want to. Sure. Where women comedians don't really have that choice. And because the industry is changing so rapidly. Like actors basically need to have a profitable Instagram account um, and different, you know, ad revenue, like other revenue streams. Um, Women comedians are just kind of perfect for this because they have that relatable voice. Whereas, you know, Nicole Kidman can sell you Dior, but she's not really going to sell you an American Express card right like you well, don't like, you don't believe know her, she exists really. outside of that that space she's sure. so far away and like iconic and beautiful and like comedians have this sense of being able to pull you into their lives that relatability is really important and it's, I mean it's
0: like the vulnerability of the woman herself mm-hmm. not of like in a role Nicole Kidman can be very vulnerable as yeah. that character mm-hmm. but it doesn't I guess it doesn't track the same way ultimately so yeah yeah so then, so that was your dissertation and it must have gone well, right? You were happy with it?
1: Yeah, it, it went well, I think.
0: Was there, I mean, with dissertations, I know some people try to turn them into books <clears> that go out and are available. Was that, a, was that something you wanted to do? Nope. You're just like, all right, that's it. That I got the PhD. Terrible. I'm happy.
1: <laughs> no, again, like I don't know if I have the stamina for that kind of long-term project in that way.
0: But, you, I mean, you do all kinds of projects though, right? I do. So, I don't know. It's just not a priority to try to do something like that.
1: Well, I think, I don't know, I, th- I think my strengths are big picture strengths <laughs> rather than, like, doing the work and pulling <laughs> them off kind of strengths. I don't know, a book is really, um, it's really labor intensive. And I also, one of the reasons I got out of academia is because I have no interest is in only speaking to another group of academics. Like, I want to speak to more people than that, which is part of why, I like, going into writing – Like that was part of that trying to find an audience outside of the you know 20 other people who did the exact same thing that i do Mm -hmm. um and so for me like a book like i don't really know what a book a book version of that very academic dissertation would look like um, but also, I have no idea how people write books. Like, how do people write books? <laughs>
0: I don't think even people who write books know from book to yeah, book they like, have to refigure need, out every do time. Do I need an
1: agent? Like, I don't. I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> well, That's but, a lot of work.
0: So, I mean, you eventually decided podcasting was maybe a way to reach those mm-hmm. sorts of people that are because yeah. I assume not only people with PhDs are uh, the main podcast listeners. Correct. So, well, how did that evolution happen, or when when did that light bulb turn on for you?
1: Yeah. So. That bull turned on when my fiance told me like just do it already because I was like someone needs to talk about these things someone needs to Cause, you know all these discussions that we're having about women filmmakers um, about people of color in Hollywood the underrepresentation of, of certain groups in Hollywood like these are all discussions that have been happening since the beginning of Hollywood and I kept complaining and complaining like why doesn't anybody read any history why doesn't people why don't people know history? Um, and my fiance was like, you know, who knows history and needs to stop whining about this? You. <laughs> and so like, he really encouraged me to to start the podcast and I very slowly kind of did it. It was a lot of research going into like, how do you do this?
0: Were you a big fan of podcasts? Yes. Which yeah. ones were you listening to as you started to figure that out?
1: Um, when I was listening to that particular one, uh, or sorry, when I was Okay, I started podcasts. I started listening to podcasts quite early on, actually. Um, my favorite podcast of all time, I think, is How Did This Get Made? Okay, yeah, it's a great podcast. Yeah, um, but for the, the inspiration for that particular podcast, for Hollywood in Color, I was listening to You Must Remember This, which is maybe its like closest analog. Um, but I was also listening to anything kind of short form um, that was being put out by, like, Pineapple Media, anything that was being put out by Slate. Like, I just really liked tight stories. Um, so in terms of, like, you must remember this, like, I think the Marilyn Manson um, season is, like, the best kind of example of, like, tight one season storytelling form. And so I was just looking for, like, how do you tell people stories, So I was listening to, like, kind of biography, podcasts, stuff um, about, like, historical events. But I was also watching a lot of, like, BBC documentaries.
0: There's Um, a ton of overlap, isn't there, between documentary and that sort of narrative podcast?
1: Yes, yeah. And so I was just trying to get... I was more trying to figure out, like, how do you tell the life of a person in an interesting way? So I was, like, reading biographies. I was watching documentaries. I was listening to podcasts about... You know, people or events, and just trying to figure out like, what do all these mediums do that are really interesting, and how do you translate that to an audio form?
0: Well, I mean that that can't be that different from like how do I write a book, right? Because you're still like, how do I do a podcast? That's this thing that doesn't quite exist. That's in my head, though.
1: Yeah, but I but I think with the podcast, as opposed to like like I mean, I guess people self publish, um, but I really do think. I don't know maybe not so much anymore but i had this kind of like romantic idea that you can still make like a pretty good podcast that gets a pretty decent following on your own like with your own equipment like you know editing it yourself all of that stuff as opposed to like book publishing Mm -hmm. you know which you really can't get the same the same level of engagement as you can with the podcast sure um and with a book it's also like it's written and it's done And then that's that's kind of it um but with the podcast i could switch tracks at my whim and i really like that too like i don't know if i have um you know again like the stamina to sit with one topic for two years or you know however long it would take me to write it but i can sit with it for three or four months and like i know I know myself, like, I can do that. Mm-hmm. Writing the dissertation took two years, and I was kind of, like, very traumatized.
0: <laughs> you, did it, you did it. You're like, I don't yeah, need to go like, back I to that space. Yeah, I don't need to do that again. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, I mean, do you ever feel... Was there any pressure on your end to try to go to, like, radio and try to make it actually, like, a radio show that's sponsored by some station?
1: I mean, I, people have suggested it. People suggest a lot of things. Um, I don't know. I... I like that it's my own. Right, you get I the control. worry that it's gonna, yeah, become something else. Like I've I've thought about like sponsorship or even ads, which like I don't have, which I should start making money off of it. <laughs> um, but you know that that idea that like, well, if I'm taking ads, then that means I have to produce, you know, a certain amount within a certain. You know, a certain amount of episodes within X amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and right now, you know, if it's taking me six months to write a season, then it takes me six months to write a season. There's nothing telling me that I should hurry up. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. You know, <laughs> um, I like that flexibility. And I get wary of this idea that people have lately that, like, you have to monetize every fun hobby that you have and everything that you do. Like, I kind of like that it's a no-pressure thing, and if I don't want to do it again, then I don't have to do it again, and I don't have really any commitments to, you know, other people monetarily or whatever that I have to answer to. Right,
0: because you don't want to get to a point where you are doing it for other people, not for you anymore, and it's like, it becomes a job, basically. Yeah,
1: yeah. and But, I mean, it is super... You know, on the flip side, I'm like, I should be getting paid for what I do. It's really labor intensive. Like, it's really hard. It takes hours and hours and hours of research. And I'm a very slow writer, so that takes a very long time. Um, the editing is the best part, but, you know, that takes hours as well. Yes. <laughs> um. And so, you know, I, I have it all in the spreadsheet in case one day anyone wants to offer me money
0: <laughs> like the hours you mean yeah like that, the exactly. hours
1: and everything but it you know it's it's you know every episode is a you know 10 grand project um and that's like when you put it that way i'm just like wow like this is amazing <laughs> um but it is also like i just know how to do it so like right. for me it doesn't feel like that much labor but well, it, it's hard work
0: is it I mean to some degree I've felt this way as well with some creative projects where it's Mm -hmm. like this is you know however many hours or years that I'm spending on it it's like it's this weird compulsion almost where it's like even if I'm not directly financially benefiting from this I have to do it Mm -hmm. and I can't let go of that whatever sort of you know method that ends up uh, happening Mm in yeah where does I mean does that come from you is this just goal of educating for people I mean is it I mean, I assume it, it has the element where it's like I get to educate people, but also I get to scratch that creative itch as well because mm-hmm. I am creating something as outside of just like in a classroom setting or something, you know, like that.
1: Yeah, yeah, I definitely think so. Like, you know, another reason why Diana shouldn't write a book is because I, like, I do think I, when I have a script, <laughs> I'm a much better communicator. Well, in, makes in, sense in that yeah, way, for sure. You know, like it is more like teaching. Like, it feels more natural to me that I would tell these stories and impart this information in this way I also just really like the audio editing portion of it it's manageable for me as opposed to doing visuals on top of that like video like I cannot produce a video I can't make a film
0: you'd probably be good at it though you have a PhD in film you know what not to do (laughs) you don't think so
1: I don't know I'd probably be fine at it but for me like I like I I just like the minutiae of it. Like, I'm like, I'm going to cut out that S and it's going to be amazing. (laughs) I don't know. I really, I get a lot of pleasure from the creative end of it. Mm -hmm. Um, But just even in terms of like the, the tediousness of it, it's really fun for me. Um, So part of why I keep doing it is because I like really like just sitting in my house with headphones, looping things and just listening to it over and over again. Like, and it, I, I feel good when I have a final product that I'm like, that sounds good. Like, that mm-hmm. good job, me. <laughs> um, and that doesn't really happen a lot. You know, you very rarely get to. At least for me, like I work on a lot of like long term projects, like at work and, you know, coming off of grad school like that was a seven year process. So seeing something come together so quickly is really rewarding
0: and you have that product whereas like if you teach a class on hattie mcdaniel it's like that that, that happened yeah i think it went well i'm yeah. never gonna experience it though you yeah. know
1: yeah which i will do though What
0: soon. Do you soon you, i will
1: be teaching a class oh, on hattie okay. mcdaniel it's through film soon. streams yeah
0: okay is that the next uh one of the next series yeah
1: yeah it's one of the well it's not a series um it's a deep dive so it's like a one one day three oh, hour okay. class um, on Hattie McDaniel. That's so it'll exciting. be a lot of the stuff that I didn't get to put into the podcast is just cause there's always a lot of that too.
0: Do you, I mean, as it is your teaching style where you do a lot of preparation and I mean, are you one of the people who kind of writes out elements of what you're going to say? Or do you kind of just, do you go in with that confidence where it's like, I know enough that I can sort of just talk about it. If I know my basic uh, points that I need to hit,
1: I do not script things, but I do an excessive amount of reading about things like I, yeah. I, I love the research part. I read everything. I read articles. I read books. I watch YouTube videos. I do a whole bunch of stuff um, just to cram all the information into my head. And then usually when I get up there, I'm like, oh, I remember so much more than I thought that I did. <laughs> um, but I'm like, a, I'm a good crammer as well. And so the podcast cycle is really good for that because I can become an, like an expert on something for three or four months and then it's gone. <laughs>
0: How'd you settle on the focuses so far for the podcast?
1: Um, I have a, a very long ongoing list of subjects. Um, the, so I, I've been kind of trying to stagger them between different like time periods, um, kind of the different groups that are being represented, um, and then also wherever... Life takes me. So, the next season that um, I'm researching is going to be on Sesu Hayakawa, who was an Asian star in the 1920s and 30s. He was like the George Clooney of his time. He was huge. He was a huge star. And he started his own production company um, because he was tired of all the stereotypical roles he was getting in Hollywood. And so, him and his wife started a production company and they made some badass. films (laughs)
0: would i know anything is there anything
1: uh um the cheat is kind of the biggest one um broken blossoms um okay i haven't
0: seen it but i'm familiar at least with that one okay
1: yeah so like really early films but he was you know the the villain usually he was great and so there there's that and then the ideas that i have after that are kind of a different format um where they're not really focused on a person but are focused on different Um, concepts or ideas so the one that I'm really excited about um, is one that in my head right now I'm just calling what is whiteness Um, and all of the different ways that uh, these different marginalized groups like Italian-Americans or you know Irish-Americans kind of became white Mm -hmm. and then how stars that were representative of those groups in early Hollywood kind of negotiated their image to um appear as white and non-threatening as possible
0: who would be some examples of that
1: um well i can't think of any old ones because i still need to do the research um but you know someone like marissa Tomei, for instance right like she really benefits from this like idea that she's an italian american Mm -hmm. um and so a lot of her, the roles that she plays are ethnically loaded in that way, but there's nothing necessarily about her that's marking her in that way. Um, Jennifer Lopez, interestingly, also plays Italian-American or Spanish or ambiguously American New Yorker. Mm-hmm. And stars in the 1920s and 30s were also doing like similar stuff. like if you were irish-american you would play like dutch maybe interesting Um, and that was a way to uh, kind of start preparing audiences to think of you as something other than your nationality to kind of put them into this conversation of like whiteness
0: that's so interesting Mm -hmm. so i'm excited how many years do i have to wait to get to that season
1: (laughs) 12 (laughs) (laughs) 12
0: Well, I mean, are you happy with the response you've gotten from the podcast so far?
1: I am. Yeah, I always get surprised when I get response from the podcast because I'm like, oh, people are listening, even though I see the stats and I know people are. But it's nice that people write and, you know, especially when when someone tells me, like, this is history that I didn't know. And I'm thankful that you told me Um, kind of as the series went on. More and more, I started thinking about not just how much of the conversations that are happening in Hollywood map onto these other time periods, but also just like a national conversation. Um, and so it became really important to me that people just emotionally get something out of the show, um, even if they don't know all of the information that. I don't know, they feel mad about something or, you know, they feel proud of their history and who they are like that is a rewarding thing that I did not know I would get out of this project.
0: If they're angry, I mean, what is that anger just at being aware of injustice or Mm -hmm. is it like with a forward looking element where you can you channel that anger into something productive? Do we have any power to change this stuff?
1: We do. I'm, yeah. Yeah, I think we do. That's a really good question. Um, I think there are a lot of reasons to be cynical with Hollywood, especially because I've been doing all this research and I see that these conversations that were happening now about, you know, the stereotypical representation of African-Americans was happening in 1918, <laughs> you know, like a hundred years ago um, and nothing has changed. Um but I think the reason why that happens is because Hollywood is really good at covering up this history and kind of making these proclamations towards progress when it's not really happening, right? It's very superficially happening. Right. Because the I, proclamation
0: sells, basically. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think that the more and more people know that, like, y'all haven't been trying for 100 years, actually. <laughs> um You know, you can make demands out of the studios with your box office dollars or, um, you know, film critics and agents, managers like all of these people have so much more power than they think that they have to actually um, change the structures of Hollywood.
0: Do you think people I mean, with box office, does that actually work now with the age of streaming? I feel like it's so hard to even make a statement like that.
1: I, like, go, I don't know I, what it looks like now. I go back and forth. I mean, there there is a thing, you know, so like, what was that movie that just came out? Smart, for instance, mm. right? I mean, bo- first weekend box office numbers really do matter to studios, right? They care about whether or not the movies that they're making are making money and especially for smaller films, if they're independent films, like ones that we're going to play at film streams, for instance, like that first weekend can determine whether or not they keep playing the movie in theaters or just pull it completely. Mm -hmm. So like that, like it does really matter in that sense. Um, But also like, if we're talking about something like Captain Marvel or Wonder Woman or like Black Panther, like those huge franchises are mostly making their monies off of all of the other stuff that they're going to sell you, like video games and t-shirts and toys and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. A lot of the box office money is coming from overseas Um, I have less faith that box office actually matters in those cases because everything's planned out. Like they have a whole marketing plan and strategy for like the next seven years set already. Um, so, you know, you're really not saying that much, Mm -hmm. um, but it's symbolic and that makes people feel good. And, you know, certain, um, studio heads might care about that, but.
0: I mean, I don't know. BookSmart's a good example to talk about, it, but I feel like Annapurna has done all kinds mm-hmm. of interesting movies, but it seems like none of them came really that close to ever making a profit, or if they did, it was very marginal. I don't know what to make of that. It just seems like people don't really go to, people don't care that much about movies as far as going to theaters these mm-hmm. days, it seems like to me, as far as what they're going to see is more like a ride or something with Marvel. Yeah, And I don't know, like when something like uh, If Beale Street Could Talk comes out, I thought that was a beautiful movie. I love Mm -hmm. that movie. Mm -hmm. And it just didn't really make any money. It didn't really enter the conversation. And it's like, I don't know what it takes to get people to go to a movie in 2019. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I mean, where do you see things going as far as interest probably are not limited just to something that Marvel would show. But do people go to movie theaters anymore, even if something looks interesting to them?
1: Yeah, no, people are definitely going to movie theaters. Okay,
0: so I'm just too cynical. (laughs) All right.
1: No, I mean, people are going to movie theaters. Um, You know, art houses in the last years have had pretty steady, if not increased, attendance.
0: Well, is it all bifurcated like that now, though? It's like you're either going to superhero movies or you're going to the art house?
1: Um, no, I mean I think there's a lot of people who are going to both things. There are less and less theaters that are playing both types of films at the same time. Mm-hmm. So if you don't have an art house near you, which a lot of the country does not, then you don't even have, you're not even given that choice. Right. right, your only choice are Marvel movies,
0: which I think also helps people sort of give up on movie theaters mm-hmm. if they're mm-hmm. not interested in the Marvel sort of option.
1: Yeah, yeah, and i mean i I totally see that I totally see that happening i I don't know I'm less of the thinking that Netflix is ruining movie going honestly, yeah, <laughs> we can fight about this if you want but like no, I, no no
0: I, I don't I don't disagree with that necessarily yeah, but I, I feel just, like the options i I think it's just that people seem to be they put a lot more thought into like do I really want to go through? going to the theater when I don't have to. Mm -hmm. And it's probably... I mean, it's not maybe that different from like going to Blockbuster or something, Mm -hmm. but it just feels like you have fewer options in theaters in general right Mm -hmm. now. And I think that that makes it harder for people to justify actually going through the effort.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, you literally do. Like Hollywood makes less movies every year um, because they're investing in these huge tentpole franchises with hundreds of millions of dollars of budget. So they're not making... Um, smaller independent films or their you know arms of the studio that specialize in that are getting less and less money for them so you know that idea like there's less movies for me to watch in theaters they're actually like that's true (laughs) that's like statistically what is happening um I don't know I I feel like there's a there's a lot of things especially like in the art house scene um not like I would want to, you know, I work at an art house theater, so, like, I understand that, like, you know, these films are really important, especially, you know, films, international films outside the U.S. to come to someplace like Omaha. Um, But really, in terms of, like, American independent films, you're not getting so much more diversity than you're getting in Hollywood, right, in terms of women filmmakers, in terms of the types of people who are in these films. Like, you see, like, three filmmakers who are, like, now tasked with making all of the films about black America and that's mm-hmm. like Jordan Peele Ava DuVernay and Barry Jenkins right sure, but yeah. like that's not necessarily opening doors for a lot of new black filmmakers to make movies and so I think there is this idea um, that because it's you know independent or art house or whatever that it's somehow you know the politics of the way that it's made are, is more progressive but that's not necessarily the case um, and so, for me, that's just, like, one thing that I, you know, that I think is really important to realize when, like, you choose to buy that ticket as well, right? Because it's not necessarily much more diverse than the Marvel Cinematic Universe or it's, whatever.
0: So, in the sense that it's not, like, a right and a wrong choice to mm-hmm. go mainstream or art house? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But that's cynical, too, though, isn't it? It or is. It its like, okay, it I mean... But
1: this is what I do. That's why I'm cynical. <laughs>
0: Right. Yeah. You would, you'd be the one to know. (laughs) Are you optimistic that it will change for the better
1: in terms of like representation? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I hope so. I mean, you know, one of, one of the things that I think is really interesting is especially like after Roma came out, like so many people were so excited about Netflix because you know, they have this contract with Ava DuVernay, um, they have, you know, Alfonso Cuaron, they have all of these great uh, filmmakers of color coming on to make like Netflix originals and stuff. But I really think that that is just part of a beginning of a strategy to, like studios, make bigger and bigger films um, for more money every year, right? Why did we get an Ali Wong and Randall Park Um, romantic comedy Always Be My Maybe because they have the stats on Ali Wong's comedy special and so they know that it was going to be worth their investment. I think more and more they're going to be moving towards taking less chances on new filmmakers new voices as well. I think the reason why they're a space for that now is because they haven't yet proven that they are Viable in that prestige way. Like, why do you think they want an Oscar so bad? They want an Oscar so that they can get more huge directors to make movies for them. And usually what comes with that is that budgets are prioritized for those huge filmmakers and not for new filmmakers or underrepresented voices.
0: So history just keeps repeating itself, essentially. I think
1: so. I mean, when you have an industry like Hollywood that's basically made on, like making money like that's what's going to happen like in australia or sweden it's very different because they have like a national film board that's subsidized by the government to make film as art right the government says hey we are interested in making art in this area here is some money canadians make it right
0: Um, we don't treat it like art and we
1: don't treat it like art. it's purely commerce and Um, Any money that's funneled toward it is coming from like benevolent, benevolent people and, you know, you know, like the, you know, humanities or whatever. But like they're super underfunded. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think until the U.S. values art a little bit more um, in terms of just like let's not cut art programs for kids and let's, you know, let kids make films and public schools or something like that um we're gonna see like market driven economics right yeah
0: well and so, I mean part of the way I assume you push toward people actually appreciating art is through education programs mm-hmm. like what you do right mm-hmm. so I mean have you had I mean what sort of response have you gotten from the education series that you've been doing mm-hmm. and like actually reaching out I know film streams has a lot of uh you know students come to watch movies mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm sure you have a part in that too yeah. so I mean what how's that going in Omaha anyway
1: yeah, I mean it's going well. So this last year, last school year we served um over 2000 students from like 43 different schools in 18 different districts. Um we've served upwards of 5000 students in a in a single school year. Like it's really great. Mm-hmm. Like I think the thing that's most interesting is the are the movies that resonate with students that you don't think they're going to be psyched about. Like I played 12 angry men to a group of eighth graders and they were so jazzed. <laughs> they were like, this is the best movie I've ever seen. Like thunderous applause <laughs> afterwards. Like it was crazy. And I was like, God, this discussion is going to go terrible. They're going to, they just fell asleep during it, but like they loved it. Right. And why do you
0: think that one resonated so much?
1: I don't know, man. It was really interesting.
0: Is it just because it, Shows how the justice system works in in a somewhat complicated way
1: yeah i mean i think i honestly think that kids and teens can handle a lot more than we give them we just don't ever let them watch things like 12 angry men
0: now we're back to kids movies are bad yeah (laughs) i'm gonna gonna come back down on my snobby (laughs) i mean
1: not necessarily bad but like you know, if you don't ever give them the chance to appreciate these things, you don't know that they will. Like right. one of the kids raised his hand and was like, you know, about 12 angry men. My dad told me this movie would be boring, but I thought it was really good. And I was like, you know, that parent, like you told their child you're not going to like this right?" and never, you know,
0: that's didn't I mean, give the
1: child a chance to form their own opinion.
0: Right. Even as an adult, I'm always really impressed when that happens when I go into some movie and I really don't think I'm going to like it and then mm-hmm. it just knocks my socks off in some yeah. way. It's like I feel like we don't do a good job of actually having that quality in general. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah. and maybe it does start like when you're kids, you know, you're told stuff like that. But mm-hmm. I don't know, it's just like a lack of open mindedness or something. Yeah. But I mean so you you found though that kids are responding in a way. Like you like everybody mm-hmm. I think culturally assumes it's like kids won't watch a black and white movie period, no matter how good it is, right? But mm-hmm. whereas mm-hmm. you're finding that in the right context, is part of it, do you think that they're in a theater watching it with a bunch of other people also having a reaction?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, the fact that they're forced to be there, like their teachers bring them, um, that they have an illuminating experience while it happens is a plus. Um, But I mean, I do think it's that communal viewing. I also think it's, you know, something that has been chosen for them in the sense that like I curate our education screenings for the entire school year so i kind of have a sense of like what will play well and what won't so i think about those things
0: how do you know that how do you know what's going to play um
1: just my history of like teaching um like there are some movies that are great but teach horribly like what um i feel like i just i just taught one it was like oh you know what taught really badly sunset boulevard
0: Interesting. Yeah.
1: I don't know. I think maybe I just didn't make it work. But like the students were not having it when I taught it um, to undergrads. They were like, no, this is dumb.
0: Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I was like, what? It's a great movie. Yeah.
0: I love that movie.
1: Yeah. But like, you know, movies like The Great Dictator, like it teaches beautifully, like Mm. everything that you want to discuss, like the students get it and it like unfolds in front of you and you're like, yes, (laughs) it's like a magic trick. You're getting them to like say the things you want them to say. It's great. Right. Um, but like I also think, you know, kids now can curate their worlds in such a way so that they don't ever have to experience anything that they don't want to experience. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't ever have to watch anything that you don't want to watch because you have to click on something to watch it. It doesn't just play on the television and you're just in front of it, right. <laughs> You know, watching network, tv or whatever I'm or even so cable so with in that, that way
0: that concept I, I so don't want to watch something that i haven't hand selected that i'd rather just like scroll through netflix for an hour yep than have watched something for an hour yep and that does feel more satisfying to me somehow which it probably shouldn't be
1: yeah but like you know and then you're a kid yeah and so are you really going to click on the great dictator Right. <laughs> like no probably not right because you think you won't like it right um and also because i feel like kids are conditioned in a way sometimes to like they're talked down to mm-hmm. right and when they think that can I c- curse on this yeah. <laughs> like when Go for it. They, they, can, they can sense when people are bullshitting them um, and I feel like if they think that something's not authentic or real like they just don't want to have anything to do with it and so I feel like some of that rebellion some of that hesitance to interact with these older things. is because the people who tend to like these older things um, act really elitist and exclusionary about them sometimes.
0: And that seems like it's been a mission in your life in general to not be elitist and exclusionary. Yes. Uh, And it seems like you're doing a lot to make that work, right?
1: I'm trying.
0: Yeah. Are you happy with (laughs) everything that's going on with all that?
1: I am. Yeah. I mean, I think... I. there are definitely moments in that theater, like in that theater as a classroom where I'm like, look at look at me, look at what I did today. There are other days where it does not go so well. It's probably normal <laughs> for any goal, though, right? Yeah, but I mean, it's, it's great to be able to have students care about something for yes. like an hour. Right. And to like talk to them as people. I think very often they're not talk to as people with like opinions or ideas and like look these kids like grew up with films in all forms right as TikToks as Snapchats as YouTube videos like they inherently know so much more about like film making and moving images than like I do it's just about giving them that vocabulary so they can say smart things about it.
0: Yeah. Do you think uh, there probably already are people who do sort of Internet culture? But, uh, you know, it's like they're going to be I'm sure they do they teach classes on like memes and things. Is that a thing?
1: Uh, Yeah, they do in colleges. Yeah. I don't
0: know. How does that make you feel? It's like it's just the, the culture changing in that way.
1: I mean it's real weird. Like I wouldn't know how to teach that. <laughs> yeah,
0: neither like, I, I, I am barely am know no what the idea. memes mean, you know.
1: I know what I know what a meme is. I'm pretty cool.
0: <laughs> I know what they are, but people send me some of them. Like it took me forever to get that one with the butterfly and the guy's like, Is this, you know, filmmaking?
1: Oh, yeah. Like I don't know what that it took me so, guy.
0: <laughs> I don't know why it took me so long. It took me like a year before I was like, Oh, like, okay, I get it now. I don't know. Yeah. Makes me feel old.
1: I mean, I do miss like, I miss having my own classroom. So mm. when I was getting my um, PhD, I taught, like, as an instru- a full-time instructor um, for the six years that I was there. And so I miss having kids that I see all the time because they used to tell me, like, watch this YouTube video, or they would, like, show me weird things on their phone. They would, like, tell me who they were listening to. Um as I go away from students in that way like I know less and less about contemporary media.
0: Well, I guess there's not a workaround. I mean, is there any push at film streams to try to do something more regular like that? Or is it always sort of going to be structured where it's like they come in for... Because you do courses, but mm-hmm. how long are the courses?
1: Courses are five weeks. So they're five-week seminars. Um, and then we have courses deep dive, which is like one day, one topic, three hours.
0: So, I mean, does that help you kind of get closer to the sense of, you know, that familiarity in the yeah. class?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I have some students in courses, which is our adult education initiative that um, have taken every course I've done. So basically for the last two years, three years, um, they're involved in my life and I like them a lot. They have their own little group of friends and I see them hanging out and talking and I really like it. Like that, that also, gives me joy mm-hmm. <laughs> like in the Marie Kondo sense yeah. like I will keep all of you I like you
0: <laughs> what's uh are, are you in the middle of a course right now or when's the next one no
1: so we just wrapped up animation that's okay um the next one will start August 3rd so that's a Saturday Saturday mornings and they will be uh it will be a five-week course on Sofia Coppola
0: nice okay
1: I'm going back to uh- my room
0: I haven't seen that Netflix one she did, the Bill Murray Christmas one. Oh, yeah. Is that one good? Should I watch that? No, you no. can skip that. <laughs> okay. That's
1: not very Sofia Coppola-y.
0: I didn't know what to make of that, and I just never got around to actually giving it a chance.
1: No. You should watch her commercials, though.
0: Which commercials?
1: Um, she has some really, two really great ones for, like, Marc Jacobs' perfumes. Okay. Um, I think she might have one for Dior as well.
0: I should look she's into those. She's a good
1: commercial director.
0: Well, she's just visually so interesting, yeah, uh, which makes sense for commercials.
1: Yeah, but uh, her and Wes Anderson are like these top-notch commercial yeah. directors.
0: Okay, Wes Anderson, what are your thoughts on Wes Anderson?
1: Um, I sure. Yeah.
0: I was I loved his <laughs> like the Royal Tenenbaums through Life Aquatic. I thought were great. Oh, and then I don't like his new stuff as much. I guess mean, technically it's incredibly impressive. He's really yeah. great at what he does, but. Emotionally, I feel like it's hard to get into his movies anymore.
1: I feel like maybe Grand Budapest Hotel was my favorite of his.
0: Okay, so we're maybe on different... you know, you like the newer stuff more than the older stuff um, in general? No, or is I, that
1: think, I think the older stuff is... I feel like the older stuff is better. Like, it's more okay. in line with, like, my my style. Like, what I like. Sad, melancholy young yeah. men and these privileged And it feels <laughs> more vulnerable to me. Yeah, yeah. And there's definitely, like, the dialogue in those is really great. Mm-hmm. Um, he makes such good use of, like, Jason Schwartzman, who I miss seeing in his film. Yeah, he
0: pops up for, like, two seconds now. Yeah.
1: But, like, to me, Grand Budapest Hotel... I liked seeing Wes Anderson have some kind of acknowledgement of history.
0: Yes. Because all his movies actively went away from that.
1: Yes. And so, like, with the faux-Nazism faux in the background, like, for me, that's like, oh, look, he's, like, trying to make a statement on something. Um, I like that. I liked seeing some kind of engagement from him.
0: That's true. I guess it maybe the, the big change was that he's looking outside of himself a little mm-hmm. bit more now and uh i don't know i guess i hadn't thought of it quite in those terms yeah but uh okay so uh, that was just a tangent because i'm always curious okay. where, where people land on <laughs> wes anderson uh because like that's totally the most hipster thing of me was i liked him yeah. before he was cool i guess yeah and, uh, no
1: totally like but i do i like grand budapest hotel as as his personal achievement
0: okay fair enough mm-hmm. well, okay so then hollywood in color yes when's the next season come out?
1: i don't know I can't in <laughs> can like, can a can't ballpark <laughs> anyway. um, where are we now in June uh, probably sometime in September
0: okay that's pretty soon mm-hmm. and what's the focus of this next season again
1: on Setsu Hayakawa that's right okay yeah.
0: and so I assume it's on every podcast app I got it through Apple Podcasts
1: all of them Spotify Overcast <laughs> name another one um, Stitcher
0: Stitcher yeah that's what I was just thought of
1: don't use Luminary
0: I don't know anything about <laughs> Luminary oh I, you know i all i do i have apple podcasts on my phone and okay. that's pretty much all i ever used it for okay good um but anyway so okay if people want to find out the newest information i assume they should follow hollywood and color on social media um, what's the best they way should. to do?
1: hwood in color on instagram and twitter um or also hollywoodincolor.org all right well thanks so much for talking to me today thank you so much tom
0: Riverside Chats is hosted by me, Tom Noblock. I produce the show along with Ben Matukowicz through our company, Xarbin Creative. We are housed at Studio 62, which is in BFF at Benson, Nebraska. Well, at BFF in Benson, Nebraska. Let's try that one instead. You can follow us on social media. Either follow Riverside Chats or Xarbin Creative. You will be able to find the backlog. The entire backlog of this show is free and available on any podcast app you choose to look at. So... Please subscribe to us there. Please uh, give us a review if you feel so inclined. And just please keep listening. Thank you so much for doing so. And as always, if you want to chip in a little bit to keep the show going, you can head on over to patreon.com slash creative We'll be back soon with another great guest, another fascinating person, doing things you may or may not have heard of. But even if you've heard of them, you might not have heard them talk for an hour. So I'm here to fill that void for you. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back very soon.